0: Today we are back with more untold tales and secret histories of comic books and on the occasion of what would be Jack the King Kirby's 106th birthday. We talk about give Jack his artwork back. It was a slogan heard around the world 1985, 1986 going into 1987. What was that about? It was a notorious standoff between Jack Kirby creator of so many of your favorite Marvel Titans, Captain America, Thor, Hulk, Iron Man, X-Men, Avengers, Fantasy 4, and with the the company that employed and published all of those works. Just how did that work out in the end? We get all the way into it today. Also, Frank Miller had an Electra movie at Sony with Oliver Stone directing in 1994. Learn more about all of it on an all-new edition of Observations. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Robservations. I am your host, Rob Liefeld. We here at Observations, we, we study the histories. We discuss the histories of comic books, of, of comic book superheroes, and of the absolute explosion of comic books and superheroes across all platforms in pop culture and the way they are dominating over the last several decades. I I have, from day one, given you my perspective, seven years old, 1974, pulling those comic books off the spinner rack, and my journey as both a fan and as as a professional. As a professional, I have been doing this for 38 years, and I, I could not be having a better time as I am currently making comic books before and after, I'm doing this podcast. It is something I intend to do until I am slumped over, passed out uh, on my drawing table or with my with my lap board. It, it, you know where I do the majority of my drawing. Comic books have just captured the attention of the world in a way that they had not prior to the the <laughs> the 2000s, and so we discuss the characters the 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 creators more importantly the creators above all uh the practices the trends and and we and we have a really fun fun show today featuring some great secret histories of comic books that you may or may not have been familiar with and and we go kind of into uh into the depths of of some of the details of some of the events that we haven't touched on uh in, in any of the in any of any of our previous episodes and we have yet another amazing interview with one of the most important figures in comic books uh in in the last 50 years and that is mr frank miller in what i believe to be his very best interview that he has ever given but today on the occasion of of the 106th birthday of mr jack the king kirby they called him the king for a reason you know at, at one point he was doing 20 pages a week for marvel comics possibly more but but most definitely, twenty pages a week. This guy had vision. He could execute that vision. He had incredible talent. Uh, the movement of characters, the 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 creation of characters. I think one of the my favorite things about Jack King Kirby is his creation of characters. The way that his characters look: the Fantastic Four, the X Men, the Avengers, Iron Man, Thor, Hulk, Captain America. Possibly his most famous. Uh, you know, visual Captain America. Jack the King Kirby was a dynamo, a titan, the likes of which this industry has never seen before or ever, <laughs> or ever. There have been people who have tried to emulate, uh, n- really none in my peer group. But certainly uh, in-, in the 70s and 80s, there were guys who look, they-, they they took their shot. They took their shot, but no one is going to achieve the grandeur, the scale, the the volume, uh, and and quite frankly, the impact that Jack Kirby did. If you if you haven't heard Jack Kirby's name enough, it's it's a damn shame. But that's why folks like myself take to the microphone to tell you about him. Was fortunate enough, as you've found out in in previous episodes that I've shared on this show, to have uh, shared shared meals. Shared time been in the Kirby's house prior to his passing in 1994. Today is an interesting, interesting uh, topic that I've never shared with you all before, and it and it uh, it concerns the period with which Jack Kirby's artwork was not only discovered, the physical original artwork, much of which had been misplaced, lost, uh, and I put I put air quotes on that lost. Because as, you, as you're going to see, the, the portion that was eventually returned to Mr. Jack Kirby just paled in comparison to the to the enormous volume that he that he that he had produced. But give Jack his artwork back. Let me start at kind of the end of this story and where I was able to uh, connect with it. But 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 all of fandom. All of fandom was aware of this between 1985 and 1986. Give Jack his artwork back had become a slogan. It had become kind of a rallying cry among fans and creators alike. And it was a period that I I am certain because I'm going to share with you from from the editor-in-chief of Marvel Comics at the time. I mean, he was aware that it was a uh, a bit of a PR problem. I, I, I think maybe just shy of a disaster. Uh, in regards to public relations and how they were perceived and being, uh, be, be, you know, interaction with the godfather of so many of their marquee creations. And this, again, is prior to the explosion that we experienced in the 2000s with the film versions of X Men and Spider Man, and, and of course, the Avengers, Captain America, Iron Man. Now, of course, Spider Man does not fall under Jack's purview other than the brilliant cover. Uh, That 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 or that that ordains (laughs) that 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 portrays Spider Man on Amazing Fantasy. Okay, that 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 what a piece of artwork drawn by Jack, inked by Steve Ditko, but all those other characters: Iron Man, Thor, Hulk, X Men, Avengers, Fantastic Four. These these are these are key 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 and, and key Marvel characters, and and you'll notice. You know, I can go on and, and and say Doctor Doom, Magneto, Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. I mean, Jack Kirby was as prolific a visionary as there has ever been in our business, and 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 I mean, I could just do the entire episode naming names, and I'd run out of names. I would I, I would run out of time before I ran out of names because he was just that prolific. I mean, think of the cast of characters in Asgard uh, in in the Thor. You know. The, the, the greater kind of supporting cast and beyond i mean it just becomes overwhelming jack was also the people who knew him in the industry he was beloved his demeanor his character uh his physical presence he and his wife Roz, when they walked the streets uh the, the streets they did walk the streets of san diego if they wanted to get to their hotel into the convention center but when they walked the floor of san diego or any of the conventions, the LA Comic Con, where I did a panel with Jack yeah, Kirby, and I was like, "Why am I on this panel? I'm too young." Uh, y- y- you just f- sensed the the uh, the warmth that not only they exuded out towards us, but everyone exuded towards them. He truly was just a gentleman, and 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 just had 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 such a an aura about him that you were just in awe, and yet he was so gentle. And kind and and uh, now all, also in his younger years, quite feisty, quite feisty. I mean, Jack never backed down from a conflict, from a fight, or, or or making his opinion known. But by this time, especially when kids who were my age were getting into comics, Jack had achieved that, you know, grandfather of comic book status. But give Jack his artwork back was coming to an absolute head in the summer of 1986, and I just so happened to be fortunate enough to walk right into the middle of all of this i i had been extremely fortunate as a fan to encounter some amazing professionals in my journey of trying to become a professional from a fan that that got got more serious around 1984 1985 as i was going to these conventions and 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 watching other people get critiques of their artwork knowing that i would be somebody who was going to be standing in those lines and, and waiting for those same judgments. And, and so watching other kind of you know promising young rookie talent, young emerging talent who are looking to get hired. And of course, during that period of time, if you are fortunate enough, you put your work in front of another professional and you ask them for input as you were on that journey. I was fortunate at the uh, very, very beginning of 1980 19- Eighty-seven to go to be hired by the major houses in 1986 i was hired by the uh independent a, a number of different independent comic book companies but marvel and and dc both bit on the rob liefeld apple in 1987 and in 1985 even some of my like fan drawings were starting to get published in 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 the uh, independent comic books but by 86 i was in independent comic books from Dark Horse, uh, from Malibu Comics, and 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 was starting this career. And along the way, eighty four, eighty five, as as I said, and especially in nineteen eighty five, when I was able to go to the Chicago Comic Con, uh, when you see a kid, even nowadays, a, a kid, a teenager who is in New York and in San Diego, you do go. Wait, I just saw you on the West Coast, and now you're on the East Coast. And uh, in in nineteen eighty five, I was having that effect on talents such as. The esteemed Jerry Ordway, uh, Michael Zek, Mike Zek, uh, John Beatty. The, the, Zek and Beatty were just a powerhouse combo having worked on Captain America and of course the monster smash hit Secret Wars that had really just changed fortunes and the future for Marvel Comics when it came out across 1984-1985. Jerry Ordway was simply one of the best and remains one of the best uh, draftsmen, artists that that has worked in the comic book business. You've seen his work on Superman the Fantastic Four. I was introduced to him on All-Star Squadron and a book called Infinity Inc. And Jerry was as polished, refined, uh, just commercial appeal, just dripping off all of his characters. His All-Star Squadron and his Infinity Inc. stuff really uh, two two DC, DC titles that he really broke out on are, are, are some of my favorite stuff. If I'm going through my comic collection and some of my assorted boxes and I come across those All-Star Squadron issues and in those Infinity Inks, I freak out. I look at them all over again. In 1986, he is dancing between DC and Marvel. He is uh, penciling and inking and, uh, Fantastic Four as well as inking over John Byrne's last few issues on Fantastic Four. He is basking in the glow of having come on Crisis on Infinite Earths which was the giant mega, again, really uh, uh, groundbreaking and, and, and a giant pivot for DC Comics. His inking and embellishing over the late, great George Perez really caught fire with fans. It was a combo I think no one expected to see, and no one expected to see work so tremendously well and be so appealing. But Jerry is an officer and a gentleman, kind-hearted, great sense of humor, uh, took took uh Pity on on little Rob Liefeld, who I am sure was uh, was was more than uh than than, than grating at times, the way he would lean over the table. But uh, I would get sketches and buy artwork from Mister Ordway, and I'd always I'd also ask him for input on my my own individual uh, sequential art. Jerry also inked some of my earliest Youngblood art. I still have that original. Uh, he absolutely one thousand percent blew me away. Uh, with with the way that he just completely polished up my work and and uh, when I got that original back, this giant piece of illustration board that I had sent to him, uh, I was just stunned at, at, at what he had done to it and and I uh, I always enjoy interacting to this day with with Jerry on social media. I don't see him nearly as not nearly as much as I would like uh, but but nothing but tremendously fond memories. Of this very, they're very kind and extremely talented and accomplished artist. Now, why am I telling you so much about Mike Zeck and Jerry Ordway and John Beatty? Because in 1986, <laughs> 1986, uh, as as I am wandering down the, the the male main aisle of of the San Diego Comic Con, who would I come across? Gathered right outside, right right to the side of of the Marvel Comics booth right right in the center aisle and again the marvel comic booth at the time was a number of just you know long you know eight by four tables that that they were putting xerox copies of the latest marvel comics work maybe they, they had a poster that you could uh take take back with them but on cork board behind them they had their posters and some schedules and there was editors there and then the select groups of talent that got to come out but uh these these DC and Marvel Comics the art and the people were the attraction the booths certainly were not the attraction they were nothing even remotely like the booths that you see now or you saw 15 20 years ago these were very basic uh displays and it was it was just part of the charm you were there to to meet the people and and talk about the characters and the comics that they were publishing not to be wowed by the design and craftsmanship and, and trust me I, I am wowed and and uh by the design and craftsmanship of today's latest booths and booth technology and, and and uh just the way they're constructed. But back then just very basic and who is standing in the center of that aisle gathered, kind of in a cluster, talking amongst themselves, but Mike Zach, John Beatty, and 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 Mr Jerry Ordway. Now you gotta recall that as I as I've talked to you several times uh in the past when talking about San Diego Comic Cons at that time, this was held this this San Diego Comic Con was held at the Convention and Performing Arts Center in downtown, right there on Front Street. And man, do I love that building and so many great memories. I mean, so, so my first 10 years of attending Comic Con, 1981 to 1991, I'm sorry, 1981 to 1990, so nine years, are in this, uh, the old Convention and Performing Arts Center. And the pandemic, I drove there to walk the grounds for the first time in almost 20 years, showing my wife, uh, you know, this is where. You know, I was hanging out over here in the quad, and there was—it was adjacent to a couple of hotels, still is. That building just seemed so enormous, in the excitement, and the buzz, and 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 in 1986, a capacity crowd for the San Diego Comic Con was 7,000 people. That was a capacity crowd in 1986, 1970. They have on record that they had 3,000 people attending, but by I'm, I'm sorry, 19. 19- Seventy-six. They had on record around three thousand people attending. So, so to have it swelled in nineteen eighty-six, uh, you know, more than doubled, more than doubled its attendance to now where, where it is. It is holding, you know, a, a, a very crowded seven thousand people. So, so the the jump from the seventies, from the three thousand attendees to to the seven thousand. I mean that you can see why they eventually had to leave and move into the brand new convention center. But I have just nothing but charm and amazing affection for for, for the uh, the incredible old convention center, the performing arts center that, that used to hold it. And if you're ever you know in town and want to drive by, so much magic happened in that building. So much magic happened in that. And that's the building where Jerry and the boys are standing in the middle of the aisle. I'm wandering up with my portfolio in hand and I'm gonna tell you, they were always extremely uh, inclusive of me, inviting me to all the different industry parties, Marvel party, DC party, even back, uh, you know, in in the uh, Wizard uh, Chicago Comic Con days, which which were when I attended in '85 and then again in '86 and '87. Jerry Jerry Ordway would be like, "Hey, look, you know, I'll I'll, uh, I'll see you at one of the industry parties." And and which were great times for people to get together and mingle and uh, you know whatever they they'd always have a, a fair amount of of the uh, the appetizers going around and 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 drinks were flowing so so n- none that I was drinking but everyone else was participating in but this is you know I, I thought okay they're huddled and and you know maybe they're going to tell me what time to meet them for the for the dinner tonight as I encounter them in the center of the aisle in 1986 and Jerry Ordway. You know, Mike, Mike, Zach and John beatty they kind of, kind of part ways they, they, they separate. And, and, and now I'm standing in the middle of this, uh, you know, uh, holy triad of comic, uh, talent. And Jerry just looks down at his briefcase and he goes here and he opens his briefcase and he grabs a hot pink t-shirt and he extends that hot pink t-shirt to me. And he says, uh, put this on when you can put this on, do me a favor, wear this. And I unveiled the shirt and it has got a cool drawing of Jack Kirby, Jack Kirby's face on it. It's not a photo, Jack Kirby's face. And in like magenta letters on hot pink, it says, and and the drawing of Jack is in the outline of his face and his, his bust is, is in the same kind of deep magenta on the hot pink. It says, give Jack. And then the bottom, his artwork back. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is so cool. And I went to the restroom 10 minutes later after I broke broke with those guys and I put that shirt on because it was a moment. It was a moment in time. It was a moment to embrace uh, the greatest talent, the greatest visionary in the history of comic books and everything that was going on. So exactly what was going on. Contracts had been changed. Work for hire agreements uh, were being altered in 1978. And the terms with which uh, you were getting your artwork returned to you as an artist were changing. And it came with uh, with a signed form and more bells and whistles. But Marvel Comics had claimed that they had discovered 88 or so pages of Jack Kirby's artwork. And as a result of getting Jack to sign off on what would be uh, um, obviously a much more serious and much more considerable agreement given that he was the guy who was there at the dawn. Uh, creating those images and those characters they wanted him and not and not part of the uh you know he wasn't he wasn't staff he he, he wasn't the, the the salaried employee like a stan lee his co-conspirator and all this and of course yes do i believe that stan uh is accredited uh as scripting all of those stories i do i have done numerous uh shows on Stan and Jack and exactly what I think of their relationship, having known both men over a period of time, having studied both men's careers. And here's the deal. I do not, this is not a, uh, a, a, a show where you're going to get me to bash Stan. I have a very clear idea of what I believe Stan contributed to that. I think he was more than just, you know, the way that people call him a huckster. I, I do believe. In, in the grand scheme, that more of the credit goes to Jack than Stan. That is my own personal belief, based on all the information that I have put in in front of me, and that sometimes upsets people who have uh, been trained to see Stan. I mean, you guys, you gotta understand uh, the power of the Stanley cameo and his charisma is such that I have had people at conventions, you know, tell me that Stan actually wrote and drew the books. So the amount of misinformation where Stan Lee is concerned is considerable. There are people who just think, well, it was Stan Lee writing and drawing Spider-Man and Fantastic Four that those people exist. I have not just met one or two. I have met many of them because, again, they're, they're just, uh, most people don't want to do the, the work. They don't want to put the research in. And that's one thing we try and do on this show is kind of you know give you the research, give you the dates, give you the facts, give, give you the figures. And so I believe Stan obviously was a uh i'll even go so far as to say a crucial part of that dynamic but i believe that the engine that was driving the car was jack kirby and and so it was time for them to put some papers in front of jack and have him uh agree to a a certain set of of conditions and i am not here to pass judgment i couldn't I, i could not there's not enough hours if i go into judgmental mode and and uh, because then it then it involves every single corporation, because corporations want to uh, button down all of their agreements and take care of uh, own and control as much of whatever they are producing as possible. And so, you know, if you can get a little equity along the way, get a little equity along the way. That's mainly not available to most people. But in this instance, during this period, and again, we have discussed. DC Comics wasn't giving their artwork back to their people either. DC and Marvel, all of the big publishers had been operating under the, the idea that they don't share. They don't give that artwork back. They don't, that that was theirs. They owned it. They kept it. There have been absolute horror stories that the artwork that was created to bring you so many of those incredible Silver Age Marvel comics and DC Comics, that that art went, went, went out the back door, went to editors, assistant editors, uh, the copy boy um, maybe some of the higher ups. Th- 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 there are there are stories that they were traded and gift given as gifts to other corporate par- partners. I have no eyewitness account and, and no uh, firm recollection uh, uh, because I wasn't there. I can't tell you about that. But I've read those stories. I've read those claims. And and the the, the one thing that gives uh, absolute you know validation is some of the stuff is there's a giant amount of this artwork that is missing. So it either went into the fire. And was burned as kindle or it was you know it changed hands and it's hidden in some collections and as we get older and more and more of it comes out there are questions always attached to pieces that no one's seen for for 50 years okay so 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 there's a broad spectrum of what was going on in regards to people not getting their artwork back dave Cockrum left dc because they wouldn't give him back a double page spread of the legion of superheroes wedding and it is because of that reason That was the straw that broke the camel's back that brought him to Marvel Comics that gives you giant size X-Men number one. So some of the cause and effect behind this is fascinating. Bottom line, Marvel is in negotiations with Jack Kirby from 1979 on. Jack has stopped working for the company during that time. There's all manner of reasons attributed to why that could have been. But uh, part of it was this standoff between Jack, his lawyers, and Marvel Comics, and what was going on was the perception was getting out there the perception was getting out there that marvel was leveraging jack by saying we won't give you the artwork that you are due at this point uh, at the at the outset of this they said we have 88 of your pages 88 of your you know decade of fantastic four avengers x men thor uh captain america iron man work i mean th- this it's again. It's it's um. It's it's quite staggering, but that was the perception that they were trading. That they were trading, basically the, the 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 physical return of his artwork of of his of his of his boards, uh, for him to to sign off on this agreement. And it had gotten to the place where during that period between 1985 and 1986 other comic companies like like dc comics wrote an open letter like eclipse comics put a freaking ad eclipse comics which was doing uh alan moore's miracle man at the time they were doing uh, a huge line of books uh airboy uh all manner of different others others that i'm that, that i'm not just recalling at the time but eclipse comics was probably the number four uh comic book publisher and they had a ton of stuff and they had important relationships again Alan Moore being the most important at the time but Eclipse was an important comic book company and and they, they they put it out in like an advertisement in their books I mean people were getting bold in their rebuke of the current Marvel management again this is the Marvel management uh, of 1985-1986 of, of and uh, at the time in response to the the uh bad PR that Marvel released Marvel released a statement and 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 it kind of give to give to give their version of, of what was going on and saying, you know, we have uh it was actually July of nineteen eighty six. Marvel vice president of publishing Michael Hobson issued a public statement saying Marvel has long been willing to give Mr. Kirby Such artwork in accordance with its artwork return policy. In fact, Marvel returned hundreds of pages of artwork to Mr. Kirby under its artwork return policy during his last period of employment between 1976 and 1978. That is the period that he was doing Black Panther, 2001, A Space Odyssey, uh, Machine Man, his return to Captain America, Devil Dinosaur. Says that Mr. Kirby signed all those release forms submitted to him at that time. Since that period, however, Mr. Kirby has refused to acknowledge Marvel's ownership of the underlying copyright in the artwork remaining in Marvel's possession, and Jack Kirby alone has made adverse ownership claims to some of the underlying characters which Marvel is presently publishing. These ownership claims by Jack Kirby were made despite the fact that Jack Kirby previously entered into several agreements with Marvel in which he acknowledged Marvel's proprietary rights in the artwork and underlying characters, and for which Mr. Kirby was fully paid by Marvel Comics. Marvel nevertheless received a series of letters from Mr. Kirby's attorneys during the past four years asserting claims of copyright ownership as a result of this correspondence. Marvel insisted that in order for Mr. Kirby to receive the artwork earmarked for him, Mr. Kirby would have to sign a longer, more detailed release than the release given to other artists. Mr. Kirby has refused to do this and the matter has been at a standstill. So let's get to the long and the short and the end of this is in the, you know, in, in in the summer of 2017, at, at, at D23, Marvel uh, gave a Lifetime Achievement Award to Jack Kirby. Jack's family was in attendance, and a few years prior to that, they had come to a settlement regarding Jack, his family, his estate's uh, claim to ownership, equity of the characters, whatever you want to call it. It's out there. You can Google it. The, the, the I didn't bring that into Uh, today's show we're just talking about this period about the artwork but at some point uh, after pressing and pressing and pressing post jack's passing with marvel comics and the you know huge success of all their characters across stage and screen they came to their agreement that that situation has been settled no matter how painful it was to get there it's been settled the kirby and the kirby family put out a statement Saying they were satisfied, they had come to an an agreement, an, an agreement with Marvel. Uh, Marvel had, you know, there were considerable funds, you know, involved in this exchange and credits uh, that, that that were afforded to Mister Kirby and and things changed for the better. And so they are in, we are in a period of 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 like resolve. We are in a period of resolve where 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 the Kirby's and Marvel you know marvel are now there's a documentary about stan currently on disney plus that kicked everything up again because it goes to claims and and maybe a more glamorous version in in the eyes of minnie a, a more glamored kind of like when vampires glamour you uh version of stanley that is that has ruffled feathers uh, and 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 i haven't watched the stan documentary i've stayed away from it but if what it contains is is reflective i I mean i can see why it ruffled feathers so this is going to be an ongoing dispute between these families for for i mean it 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 appears to be something that that is is never going to completely be resolved in spirit but certainly contracts were were reached agreements and 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 those two have been in a period of resolve but during this period in 1986 with this artwork again giving giving rival companies taking out full-page ads I am handed a, a a shirt by one of their top talents at the time, Jerry Ordway. Give Jack his artwork back. This spills into a panel during during uh, on the floor of of 1986, of which the the uh, the man that heads the comics journal, uh, Gary Groth, who was very outspoken, very extremely outspoken. He he was a. Uh, I believe he was emceeing or or moderating the panel for uh for the Kirby panel in uh at San Diego in nineteen eighty six. And this standoff was still going on and at the at the Jack Kirby Comic Con panel, Gary Groth, the publisher of the Comics Journal, and the Comics Journal has been a source of so many great interviews that I've been able to share with you uh, over these many years now of observations, and the the uh, at the com- at the at the Kirby panel, Gary Groth just stated flat out that Marvel owed Jack Kirby three things: return of his original art, or monetary compensation when the art has been lost and stolen, his rightful creator credits for cur- uh, characters that Kirby had created or co-created, and they owed him an apology. the uh, The audience roared. With applause. Now, Jim Shooter is sitting there. The editor-in-chief of Marvel Comics attends this panel. And I gotta say, wisely so, very, very smart of him to do so. Uh, he is a very tall guy. Jim Jim Shooter is is taller than 6'5. He stands out in a clou- in a crowd. He is very uh very tall, very imposing figure. He stood up and remained afterwards to answer questions from the fans. And if we go to his version of things, uh, it, it 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 he felt like there's an angry mob, and he didn't know how he was going to get out of this place. I'll read an excerpt from his recollection of this in a second. But Mark Evanier, who for for as a, as a young man was a a physical assistant to Jack Kirby when he moved to Southern California, sat there, xeroxed uh, copies of, of the pages, got him coffee, just basically sat next to him, talked to him, discussed whatever jack what was it was on jack's mind just running the full gamut of assistant art assistant during that period he he had more physical access to jack kirby than anyone at the time mark evanier states that uh jack kirby had made a few threats suggesting marvel's copyrights were vulnerable to his challenge and over the course of the correspondence uh creator credit issues kept heating up um they kept threatening him. He's speaking of Marvel and kept threatening him. He is again speaking of Marvel. Uh, Mark Evanier told the Comics Journal. It was the only way uh, that he could get their attention by dangling this uncertainty in regards to the credits. Uh, he said, quite frankly, in Mark Evanier's opinion, someone at Marvel Comics overreacted. And this le- led to this giant standoff of the artwork. The uh at the Marvel Then and Now panel in 1986, Jim Shooter stated that Marvel owns the artwork entirely. So, let me give you my own kind of my own perspective because I've dealt with lost artwork with Marvel Comics. In 1989, I did an issue of X Factor, I did an issue of X Men. Both of those issues, I was eagerly anticipating getting the original art for those issues back. I mean, especially considering X Men is the number one selling book. In the comic book industry, I was fortunate to do a single issue of X-Men. X-Factor was a top-selling, top-ten-selling book for Marvel. I had done an issue of X-Factor. This was extremely exciting for me. It was as I was being prepared, groomed. Uh, you, you you would, I know that that's a that's a potent word now, but I was a you know, 19, 20-year-old uh, artist groomed to take over New Mutants. So I was waiting in the wings, and they had given me these incredible X-Factor and x-men opportunities and selling the original art was a way that all of us as artists made more money people have said hey what, what were you guys thinking you know uh I- i've talked to some of your peers whether it was sylvester or McFarlane or, or or jim lee and you guys used to sell these pages for hundreds yes yes hundreds of dollars was seen as a giant deal if jim was getting several hundred dollars for a Punisher reward or journal page or i was getting several hundred dollars for a hawk and dove page, that was a big deal. That was up from 50, 60, 80, 90, $120. I mean, now you're giving me two, three, four hundreds covers. If we could get 1000 dollars for one of our covers again, 34 years ago, that was seen as a big deal. That was an additive. That was a, you know, that was a a plus to what we were trying to do in regards to over, you know, taking care of our overhead as artists, pay bills, pay for the car, pay for the rent, pay for the groceries and 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 it's just now that the artwork has taken on this incredible uh value and 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 as a collector who has incredible pieces I'm thrilled by it okay but as someone who who wants to add to that collection it is intimidating and those prices have have just become uh it, literally they're they're extraordinary prices so you rely on your art especially back then to give you that extra additive it was part of what every artist believed not only uh did I not see any of the pages from X-Factor and X-Men return to me? That includes the cover. When I asked if Marvel would compensate me for losing those, the editor-in-chief at the time, and I like Tom DeFalco, uh, he called me up and he said, Rob, I understand you're having this issue and that uh, the actual pages that are allotted to you because it's basically a two-third, one-third breakdown. In comic books, the inker gets the third uh, and the penciler got two-thirds and it was always decided on randomly you you never knew exactly what you were getting back sometimes you could call up the inker, especially uh if if you were buds with him and and like i was with carl kiesel and hawk and dove and say okay this i would really like this page and carl's like well this is a meaningful uh moment for me and as and and, and as as the fact that i wrote it and inked it uh, i would appreciate this page so you know you negotiate all that stuff ahead of time when it came time to do the new mutants the atlantis attack uh uh, and the amazing Spider-Man Atlantis, Atlantis attacks annuals that I did shortly after this. I talked to the anchor ahead of time. We talked over like certain pages that we both wanted. We came to an, ex- uh, an understanding so that it wasn't just random. But in case of that X Factor and those X-Men issues, I just, I just didn't get that artwork back at all. And so Tom DeFalco says, I understand that this art has not been returned to you and we are not, uh, having any, you know, luck locating it. And I understand that you want to be compensated by it. And then as the editor-in-chief of a giant corporation is going to do, he then leans into policy. And policy is, Rob, that is a gift that we give to you. You don't own that. That is a gift that we give to you. So we will not be uh, compensating you for the lack of the gift. The the fact that the gift is not making its way to you is not uh, going to result in us compensating for you that you are gifted that are. Our- basically by our good graces we give that back to you now obviously that doesn't really occur anymore because no one sends their physical artwork to anyone at Marvel it's all scans it's all digital files so you were absolutely if you were creating on paper you are keeping that in your possession you probably have for the better part of over 20 years but when 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 Jim shooter boldly states from from a uh from a pulpit at a convention, and says we own it. That is policy. That is that is how they viewed the artwork at the time. So ultimately, it says that Jim Shooter and uh, Jack Kirby got together, had a meeting that same 1986, where Jerry already gives me the T-shirt. Give art. Uh, give Jack his artwork back. And uh, they had a brief uh, discussion. Jim Starlin uh, apparently is 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 who united them on that on that floor. Jim Starlin motioned Jim Shooter to come over and and to meet with him. And there was a uh, a resolution at this show. The resolutions started a, a discussion between Jim Shooter and Jack Kirby. And Jim and Jim Shooter has has numerous time numerous times in his uh, in his own personal blog that he that he was writing in the early, like, like 2010, 2011, that, that period of time, he has just given nothing but just effusive praise to Mr. Jack Kirby and all that he accomplished. And he even attended a a, uh, a sketch-off that Jack did or Jack drew uh, 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 at San Diego, and, 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 and Jim ended up buying it. Uh, I, I think Jim was a definite fan, but to hear from Jim Shooter, who was the editor-in-chief at the time, he would tell you that, uh, and I'm going to actually read to you from his words uh from his his blog where he talks to you about he believes uh that it was a controversy his the article is the jack kirby artwork return controversy and uh and and he and he starts out by just saying before the mid-70s because marvel people started signing the the artwork return vouchers and 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 the in the in the one sheet agreement to, to to get their artwork back in the mid 70s marvel is on record as 1976 around 1976 dc will tell you they were doing it as, as as early as 1974 as the collector market grew stronger and the artwork was becoming more valuable artists wanted their artwork back i mean that that's like just kind of no duh jim shooter had become the editor-in-chief in 1978 and uh At that point, Marvel Comics, according to him, and this is something that Mr. Roy Thomas had initiated, according to Jim Shooter, that Roy was even giving writers pages of the of 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 the original art. To which Jim Shooter says, "Go figure." He says, "As soon as I could, I changed that." One reason why a few writers, like Doug mentioned, Roy Thomas didn't like it because he took ownership of artwork away from the writers, and I I got to be honest. Um, I am in support of what of, of what Jim Shooter did here. Uh, the, the, the physical labor that goes into these pages belongs to the people doing the physical labor creating those pages. That's my opinion. So he says, Jack Kirby worked for Marvel during this period when, when, when he was the EIC and he had his art returned to him just like everyone else. The dispute over Jack's old art uh, was from the art return plan that was initiated and instituted. And it was based on co- collating and collecting all the art that Jack uh, of, of, of Jack Kirby's that was in the Marvel warehouse. Uh, Marvel, Jim Shooter says he was on the side of Jack Kirby and all of the other older artists. And he tried at every opportunity to convince Marvel's brass to return the old artwork. There were numerous reasons cited by the corporate council, the financial officers, why this was a huge problem. That the art uh, could be considered an asset and could not be disposed of without benefit to the stockholders of a publicly traded company. There were tax issues and lots of other nonsense. According to Jim Shooter, I'm reading his words exactly over time. I successfully overcame those objections and got approval from the board to return the old artwork. Kirby's contract expired right around that time. And he'd left. As soon as he left, he sued Marvel for ownership of the characters that he'd created, or he threatened to sue as, as is the other side. Suddenly the artwork was frozen because of this legal act. Uh, and, and the complications that followed, they, uh, would not allow Jack his artwork back, and uh, and and it extended to not just Jack, but everyone, including, as he said, John Buscema, Sal Buscema, and Joe Sinnott at the time. The legal sparring went on a long time, too long. Jim Shooter believes. Uh, he says that during this time, uh, he would run into Jack conventions, and he could not have been nicer to Jim Shooter. Jack Kirby was could not have been nicer in his exchanges with Jim. Uh, and if you we're at the podium, if you were at the panels and heard what Jack said from the podium in those days, again, we're reading directly from Jim Shooter's blog, that he would acknowledge he was having a dispute with Marvel. He'd also say, we're trying to work it out. He was extremely gracious about it and others would get really vicious. He said, there was a time that I was a show, 1986, I was sitting in the back of the room. Uh, he says, that Gary Groth was working a crowd, this crowd into a frenzy, shouting, if you see anyone from Marvel, Go after them with two by fours. He says, while seated in the back of the room, acknowledging that there was three hundred people between him and the door, Jim Shooter writes, Hmm, I think this is going to get interesting. A guy sitting next to him, a fan sitting next to him during this panel, turned to Jim Shooter and says, Why don't you say something? And Jim Shooter told the fan they are not here to hear no one's here to listen to me talk. He said, I obviously survived this incident. Um, but it was one more problem in my life that I needed. I was in a position as Marvel's representative where I could very well get out in front of a crowd and say, Hey, those guys upstairs at Marvel are total assholes. I keep trying to tell them to do the right thing and they just won't do it. As long as I was cashing the paychecks from Marvel, my morals say that I could not do that. That doesn't mean that I couldn't fight like a maniac behind closed doors, which I did, making a great number of enemies in the process. Eventually, I convinced the lawyers that it wouldn't compromise the case if other artists were to get their art back and I was allowed to return everyone's art but Jack Kirby's. He said the Kirby case ended when Marvel, in discovery, during this discovery process, produced a number of, of documents, including several signed with Cadence Industries' predecessor. That's who... Uh, who martin goodman had sold marvel comics to a a number of documents including several signed with cadence industries predecessor proving that jack kirby had specifically agreed more than once in exchange for compensation beyond the original payment for the work that marvel owned the art one document specifically listed every story kirby ever did part of the proof that martin goodman was able to uh was required to provide that he owned when he was selling when he sold to marvel he sold Marvel to Cadence, so so Martin Goodman had a document from Jack uh, signing where, where Jack had signed over the fact uh, that that these rights were not indeed his. Uh, Jim Shooter says Kirby's lawyers were apparently unaware of the existence of this document that Martin Goodman produced, and they immediately dropped their suit because it was nullified by this document. Uh Jim Shooter believes that Marvel would have shown this to them earlier, but did not did not have it in their possession until discovery. They didn't; they were not aware of the existence of this document. So the only thing remaining was to return the art to Jack. Uh, then there was a credit issue that had to be hammered out, and uh, <clears throat> he said that uh, Jim Shooter. Met with Jack in San Diego, he sat down and he talked to him. I believe this is the meeting referring to when Jim Starlin brought the two together, and he says in regards to credit and 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 Jack wanting sole credit, he said, Jack, can I just ask you? Don't you believe that Stan deserves some credit? To which he, this is Jim Shooter writing, responds that Jack said, yes, yes, he does, and he said, so you'd be okay if we put both your names? And he said, yes, yes, I I am, and he said also Jack. In your letter, you have insisted that you created Spider-Man. And Jim says, I know that you contributed to developing versions of Spider-Man, but that your version is not the one that was actually the final used. And Jack agreed to drop that and give that credit, sole credit to Ditko in that regard. He said uh, at that point it was settled and he got his artwork back. Jim Shooter says, finally, uh, having... Given Jack his art back. Uh, <clears throat> very few people, very very few people know the people behind the scenes who had been calling the shots during this entire ordeal. To the average fan, Jim Shooter was the face of Marvel, and he was the one. He says, "I was in a position where, unless I was willing to get out there and badmouth uh, one of the founding fathers of Marvel Comics or badmouth the people who were signing my checks at Marvel Comics, you know, what could I do? Damned if I." He was literally correct in his damned if I do, damned if I don't position. I was not willing to badmouth Jack, and I felt honor-bound to represent Marvel as best I could, even if I disagreed with their policy. I didn't disagree with the legality of their stance, but with the intelligence of enforcing it. It was just an idiotic position from the beginning. I kept hoping I could work something out from my point of view. No one on this planet fought harder for Jack and his interest than me. Uh... I am the most vilified human being in the world. When the subject of Jack Kirby comes up, it wears on me still. Probably no one will believe me at this point. So be it. I'm not interested in proving my case. I'm interested in getting, I'm not interested in getting into a debate with you over it. I have said my pace. <laughs> I have said my piece. He said uh, during those years, his relationship with his corporate bosses had gone downhill. And in honesty, uh, Jim was removed from the company. Uh, Jim was removed from the company within a year after this uh and, and and he basically he he wraps up his column thinking that some of why they were upset with him is a result of the uh of the of of the the work that he put into facilitating this on on the kirby guy the kirby side now if you're like hey what, what was the kirby's view of this of this paper that martin goodman showed up that Jack jacket signed previously uh <clears throat> The final resolution, from Mark Evanier's point of view, and 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 uh, and uh, that that they had to drop their demand based on this document that Marvel agreed, and that the attorneys did admit that the other side did not know uh, they, that they had possession of it. He said that uh, that that finally gave marvel a a a certain amount of leverage uh jack acknowledged it uh jack signed the form the artwork was returned here's the great news remember when i said it was 88 pages that they believed 88 pages they believed was going to be returned to jack it ended up being 1900 pages which they believed jack had generated over 8,000 pages for them so 1900 is still a paltry amount it was far short of the total output that jack had created for marvel but it was considerably more than than the amount that they had uh, that that they had originally believed was going to be offered to him so th- the thing was marvel had even hired someone to basically collate all the art that they had in a warehouse and it took them a solid year to to come up with all of this to come up with all of these different pages but jack ultimately and and i think jim shooter most certainly alludes to it many times in his his recollection is that there was a great amount of shame put on marvel and put on the brass and for a period it caused them to double down but give jack his artwork back was a rallying cry from 90 really 1985 to 1987 and when Fanboys who were showing up to buy comics were talking about it in the comic store. And again, I worked as a clerk at the comic store in, in 86 in the, in the in the boom of when Watchmen and Frank Miller uh, Frank Miller's Dark Knight was coming out. So fans were showing up in droves. This was a topic of discussion. This was a regular topic of discussion about Jack and his artwork. And, and how could Marvel not give it back to him? So getting that, those 1,800 pages was absolutely a victory. Given the long standoff that had, that had existed pro- around 1979 when they first told Jack, hey, your agreement is going to come with a special caveat that says you're also signing up any claims you ever have to these characters. So, again, let's reflect on the fact that the Kirby estate, the Kirby family, has re- reached a settlement, a deal with Marvel Comics. Everyone came to the table. Everyone is in their resolve period but during this period of 1986 it was extremely uh hostile there was a ton of animosity Jim Shooter is right he was seen as the bad guy again you can't be as tall and as giant a presence as Jim was and not and and out there cuz Jim was attending uh shows and representing Marvel as best he could and if you've listened to this the show even a few episodes you 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 know that i believe Jim Shooter was the best editor in chief Marvel Comics ever had. That didn't mean everything he that does not mean he everything he did was perfect. He definitely slipped on some banana peels at the end, and uh, and things soured for him, and it went bad fast. But man, from 1978 to 1985, Marvel Comics shined. And when you talk to uh, the fans of that era, they will just their eyes sparkle with all the great memories, the talent, the stories, the, the just just the 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 moments that they carry from that. And it was because the guy at the helm was making more calls that were right than more calls that were wrong. But being handed that shirt and being enlisted, uh, give Jack his artwork back, put this shirt on. (laughs) I really wasn't given a choice. That's my favorite part, man. Jerry Ordaway just reached into that briefcase. He had like about two or three of those shirts left and he handed me one. And uh, it was just a really... Difficult time, obviously, between Jack and Marvel. But having visited the Kirby's in 1993 and being invited into the art room, and the first thing that Ross said is, "You know, the Marvel stuff is off the table," and that's fine. Uh, that's all that needed to be said. Nothing else needed to be followed up. Uh, oh, you know, the questions really come to mind. Where's Where's the other? You know, six thousand pages. You know where's the other six thousand pages of art that 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 did not get returned to Jack Kirby? Where is it? Again, there are all manner of stories and myths um, that it still exists. It's in people's collections. It's in warehouses. We'll never know. Hopefully, uh, it'd be great if some of that stuff would be discovered and continue to be returned to the Kirby's. And at that point, even I. In, in acknowledging that that's a bit of a pie-in-the-sky Pollyanna outlook. But Give Jack, his artwork back, was a period. It was a period of time. Fandom was in on it. There were people on both sides. There, there was definitely a, a, a lot of emotion. Again, other comic companies took out full-page ads. Will Eisner. I have not included the fact that Will Eisner uh, of the Spirit wrote a open letter to Marvel Comics chastising them at the time. So these people are... I mean, look—we're talking about a period that is almost forty years in the past. So, so those people are not in management anymore, and those those uh, the you know many of the people who are making those decisions that caused Jack grief and pain uh, and discomfort and some probably mental toil—they're long gone. And obviously, Jack is gone, and Jack would be one hundred and six years old this week, as we are recording this. So, on the occasion of his birthday. I wanted to share with you this period about give Jack his artwork back, uh, and 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 thank God that that he got those eighteen hundred pages returned to him, and there was some resolve. And I'm just going to tell you, when you encounter Jack. And when I encountered Jack at his house and the time that I brought the extreme studios guys with me and the times that I had dinner with Jack offsite at a convention or was seeing him at a party or sharing a panel with him, he never, ever, ever shared bitterness or showed uh, animosity, good spirits, happy guy, well aware of all that he was accomplished, maybe wanting a little more uh, credit than he was due. But he wasn't a guy who was sitting around, you know, griping and complaining. He exuded that excitement for comics that, that, that extended to the rest of us and excited all of us. And Jack is the visionary behind so many of this, so, so, so many of these stories. When I am flipping through my comic collection and I see the run that he did in 1976 of Captain America, I get excited. Those, those, those pages are amazing. They're the covers of the book. I'm seeing his work first and foremost. The visuals matter. We talk about it here on the show all the time. Visuals matter. And the artists, the visionaries who are meant to entice us because these are comic books. They have pictures. They're not novels. I will always value the artist higher because that's the medium is based on. It's an art-driven medium. And no one, as I've said before, was better at it and deserved more than Mr. Jack the King Kirby did. There are few talents who are as impactful as Jack Kirby and who will tell you at the same time they're inspired by Jack Kirby, you know, as important and look to Jack as as, as someone who was a seminal influence on their work. And that is Frank Miller. I have shared so many Frank Miller interviews, so many excerpts from Frank's, uh, you know, just incredible interaction with the press because Frank was always a great interview always had something fantastic to say in 1994 he gave this amazing interview that i am just sharing with you for the first time 1994 he gave this amazing interview to comics interview it is comics interview magazine number 129 and in it he just drops all sorts of amazing statements and i wanted to share with you because uh, there's some crazy stuff here some stuff that even i was like what uh he is being interviewed by a gentleman. Let me let me let me let me tell you who this is. Here, he is being interviewed by a gentleman named Mark Lucas. Mark Lucas conducted this interview. It is printed in comics. Uh, comics Interview, nineteen ninety four, issue number one twenty nine. If you want to get yourself a copy, there's a Todd McFarlane Spawn and Batman cover on it. And over the course of this interview, you know Frank Frank's love of comics just shines through. But he gives some really great. Tidbits along the way during this period. Frank is producing his second volume of Sin City uh, for Dark Horse, and he is talking briefly about uh, doing Batman for the Batman Spawn crossover that he was doing with with Todd. Uh, really, that 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 is limited to yeah, I'm doing Batman, and he's um he's he's not the Dark Knight Batman uh, in in the course of this crossover, and really they don't they don't give a whole lot more to 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 it. That they spend way more time on all of the other projects and 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 quite frequently th- that they ask about so much of what he did in the past so that the the batman's the spawn batman stuff is just a springboard and he you know really just says that it's fun to write batman again and and that's about it and that batman is is again not not the year one batman and he's not the aged dark knight batman but he's like a 30 year old batman in the story that he's writing and he doesn't really have a whole lot more to say. Frank talks about how much he enjoys doing comic books. And the interviewer says uh <clears throat> he says is that <clears> Frank talks about the fact that he had worked on RoboCop 1 and 2. I mean, I'm sorry, RoboCop 2 and 3. And he says uh my co- he, Frank says, and I quote, "Comics are my first love. I love the freedom I'm afforded." It's rare historically that any artist gets the kind of freedom that I have now. Comics to date have been much more deeply rewarding for me. Again, this is Frank Miller telling interviewer Mark Lucas. And Mark says, is that because you have control over everything? And he says, yes, that's the main reason. And then here's the best. He says, also, comma, I love to draw. I love to draw comics. We have this wonderful audience where you're not dealing with the focus groups and you're not in a room full of people who are terrified because so much money is at stake it's mostly because i can be my own little dictator on my own little comic book and when i finish a page i know that that is exactly what it's going to look like when it sees print and that sums up i think for everybody who does comics why we love comic books so much it is an absolute artistic expression the most individual artistic expression that we can bring you and and it is just a pure dynamic that is shared where artist and audience get to interact and you're seeing exactly what we're seeing and it is it, it's that control and it is that freedom but here is whoa here's the mind-blowing thing i did i'm like literally this blind spotted me i was completely blinded they said well because they're transitioning from frank talking about comic book work to movie work and and any and they said would you like to write for any of your characters uh it, it, any Hollywood projects with your characters, and again, this is 1994. We've had the two, you know, Batman movies in in recent times, the '89 and the '92, and and there's all sorts of talk during this time about more, but there's not much more. And Frank says, "Well, which one are you talking about?" When he asks, "Would he, what, I, what do you like to do?" Any characters, and he says, "Uh," <clears throat> and and then he he says, "You know, are there projects that you would?" like Hollywood to tackle. And Frank says, I'm not sure I'd ever want Hollywood to tackle uh, anything for me. And, And Mark Lucas says, well, which ones would you be interested in? And Frank Miller says, really, I would love to take it case by case. I wrote a screenplay for the Electra movie. And that screenplay and that project is with Oliver Stone. He says, I think a lot of the stuff that I have done will translate. It's just that it it would be a job of the actual translation. Probably the two that I think would lend themselves to the film treatment the best are Sin City and Martha Washington. The interviewer says, the Electra movie with Oliver Stone, uh, what can you tell us about it? Frank says, I can tell you. He says, I can't tell you much. I can't tell you anything. I wrote the draft for TriStar Pictures, which was a division of Sony at the time. You still see that TriStar logo on some stuff. Uh, I wrote a draft for TriStar Pictures. I have no idea what is going on currently. And Mark, the interviewer, says, you have no no input. And Frank says, not so far. And then he says, who would you like to see play Electra in your screenplay? And Frank Miller says, someone no one's ever seen before. Someone who would create that role in such a way that Electra would walk on the screen and whatever star that we've seen in the last eight movies uh, and, and will not be whatever star that we've seen in the last eight movies. uh, They do not use enough unknown talent in Hollywood. Mark then says, it seems as if you're more prolific now than at any time since you broke into comics. What is the impetus for this? And Frank says this now, at the time that Frank is giving this interview, he is in his 30s, by the way. Now, this week or last week and next week, you're going to still get covers from Frank Miller. Frank Miller is still contributing to the comic book universe. He, He draws interiors. He draws covers. He's doing stuff with his Frank Miller Presents comic books. He's doing stuff on Ronin 2. He is drawing covers for Marvel. Uh, people still take his work and debate it because he is still producing work. He is producing physical artwork for you. This And this is, good God, 29 years after this where he's asked why he's so prolific. And Frank says, I don't know. Perhaps it's opportunity. You are talking to someone who is living the dream of his life. I entered the comic book field at a very, very different time when things were much more restrictive and superheroes were about all anyone could do. Not that I have anything against superheroes. I love doing them, but things have opened up so that if an artist who has enough following and, and if he wants to, he can, he can be much more involved in the entire process and exert much more control over the work. It took a while to really get the hang of doing originals and creating a world for each first time out. But now that I've done that, I feel freer and happier about comic books than i ever have before this is just awesome just to read again the 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 joy coming from frank miller who is absolutely at the peak of his powers during this time and we continue and uh they said hey go mark says go back a little ways can you tell us how did you get daredevil how did you break into comics and 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 you know frank's been asked this a lot but each time is is a slightly um, different answer not the facts don't change, but the, the content of what he's sharing changes. And this is great. He says, it's really hard. It's, um, I, I broke into comics the hard way. I broke into comics years before getting Daredevil, but by making a nuisance of myself, by getting the very uh, generous help of Neil Adams, not only in terms of him critiquing my work, but advising me how to improve and, uh, and even settling, setting up uh, all of the initial contacts that I had in the field. Neil did that for a bunch of people. He's not given nearly enough credit for the things that he has done for the younger artists. So I started taking any job I could. I did Twilight Zones for Gold Key. I did Weird War Stories for DC. Eventually, I got work from Jim Shooter and Archie Goodwin at Marvel doing fill-ins on Captain Marvel and Spectacular Spider-Man. He goes, when Gene Colan, who had been drawing Daredevil for a a long period of time, finally decided he didn't want to do the job anymore. I lobbied hard uh, for that job because I had just drawn Daredevil Uh, in a Spider-Man fill-in. He felt more like a crime character than any of the others. He wasn't as totally intimidating as Batman. Besides, no one was offering Batman at the time anyways, so I thought that I could bring something to the book by making it more of a superhero crime comic than a superhero among superheroes comic. He says, what would you tell today's budding talents? Frank says, it's a very different time than when I came in. The common wisdom in the industry was that there would not be a comic book industry in five years in 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 five years from when i broke in he goes that was before the direct market saved all of us now i would be hard pressed the only way i know of uh are the ways that literally everyone knows of getting into the business go to conventions present your portfolio bug people in that manner it's tough out there but on the other hand there's an incredible number of stories being produced there's also a greater demand for comics i would say just make yourself known get your work around if you're going to submit uh, something by mail. Keep it keep it very short because people will not read a thick stack of anything. So again, great tips. Great acknowledgement of what was going on from one Mister Frank Miller. I just oh my gosh, I just love this interview. Jumping down, uh, he talks about because he's talking about his different jobs, and this is this is uh, where we'll 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 wrap this up. In, in 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 contrast, he's asked to contrast Batman and Daredevil. And he says, Batman is a control freak. Batman's entire life stopped making sense when he was a young boy. His parents were murdered and he spent the rest of his life forcing the world to make sense. Daredevil is a much more complex character than that. He doesn't have the epic quality that Batman does. He's had a very tortured route uh, to get to who he is. He is someone who could have easily wound up the bad guy, but he has learned to control and direct his passions to serve good. Daredevil's overall motivation is not revenge, but justice. Batman is, in many ways, punishing the world. Batman loves to hate criminals. Daredevil can't let himself go too much because he's dangerous. Daredevil can't let himself go too much because he's dangerous. Matt is out to balance the scales in any given situation. He doesn't have an overpowering urge to kill, as I believe Batman does. This is straight from Frank Miller. Batman has to use restraint, but Matt can't stand for things to go wrong. He's also ridden by guilt, shame, and confusion. Just look at his love life. The interviewer then says to him uh, if he would like to uh, revisit Daredevil. I mean, re- revisit Daredevil and Electra. And he has just finished doing Man Without Fear that John Armita Jr. is doing at this time. And he says. I have nothing in the works with Marvel. It's kind of hard to see that in the future. They seem to be junking my characters or at least radically transforming Daredevil. Also, it doesn't sit well with me that they have brought back Electro without even consulting me. I feel pretty burned about all of it. They They had every legal right to do so, but it's just one of those lessons that you learn about what it means when you create something and you fall in love with it and then you let somebody else in on it. He says, if they offered you would you work on Electra again? And he said, see the above answer, Frank says. They have their philosophy that they are testing out to the fullest, that the artists are interchangeable and that the ideas are best kept as company property. But when you have created something, been associated with it so powerfully, been the only writer to depict the character and something like this happens, you don't really feel safe with that character anymore. So I'm not saying at this point, never again, but in reaction to current events, it is not anytime soon. Then he goes on to say that, you know, he's glad that he saw the light shortly after creating Electra. He says, uh, I caught on early. Electra is one of the few characters that I've created that I don't own. The, he said, there are two sides in this creator ownership business and the other relates to the readers. I've been asked a number of times at conventions and such why people don't stay on books longer. It's a real concern readers have because they like a particular, they like a particular person's work on any given title and then that person leaps. Then they have to completely readjust. My answer has been that if it is one of the company-owned comic books and you're investing in uh, much of yourself in that, after a while you have to start to feel like a real jerk because you know that you can be replaced at any time. You know you have no long-term investment in this. You just have to look as far as Jack Kirby or Chris Claremont and you can see that there is no loyalty coming from any side. The only thing I can really say is that I don't know a a solution to this business about the company-owned books. I can guarantee that no one else will be doing Sin City but me. So, Frank again is um, and this was a period where for the first time they were bringing back Electra and you can hear me turning these pages on this interview. They can uh they they can turn back that he no one had really depicted Electra in 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 almost tw- the 20 years since a, 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 at this point to be honest, the 14 years since he introduced her. But Frank, but they were moving on without him and obviously he was uh, he was disenchanted and that example is one that people like me were aware of when you create characters for Marvel or DC you do not own them that is part of the acknowledgement the best you can get is to get something out of it and uh and certainly i believe frank utilized so much of what he poured into daredevil and and electra to make a much better life for himself and he even says as such in here i think Interestingly, as it's wrapping up, they ask him, Who would Frank Miller have liked, would like to collaborate with? And he says, Well, I worked with John Busema, who did an issue of Daredevil with him. He says, uh, I'm going to say Joe Kubert. I would love to work with Joe Kubert. And of course, that did not come to pass as Joe Kubert passed away. I would have absolutely loved to see something extended in that way. But, uh, at the end, Frank says that, did you ever, the, the the interviewer says, did you ever foresee this entire life that you've led? And he says, in, in detail, no. In intent, absolutely. I made up my mind when I was eight years old that I was going to draw comic books. And that's what I was going to do. And, and he said, so again, you are living the dream. And he said, yes. And again, you guys have heard me say so many times how much I am so fortunate and, lo- and, and, and just love the fact that I can make comics for you. And I'm 55 years old. I'll be 56 in a month. I absolutely have no intent of slowing down. So reading an interview like that with Frank Miller is is inspirational to me. And I hope sharing it is inspirational to you. Because these older interviews, just the things that are said, the way they're said, I love his breakdown of how he sees Batman I'm not sure anyone else sees Batman the way Frank does that he wants to simply just punish the bad guys and that he has a lust to kill them which separates him from Daredevil which who has to be more controlled and more constrained and I do believe when he says Daredevil had a much more t- tortured life the you know the blindness the struggle uh his dad you know uh, boxing with all the mob debts uh it, it, it's just it's just nowhere near the fortune that was left behind for him as was with bruce wayne great contrast but uh also guys there was an Electra film that frank miller wrote that oliver stone was going to direct that they claimed daily variety reported on so wow like wow had to share this secret histories of comic books is what we were all about today give jack his artwork back Uh, There was an Oliver Stone Electra movie that Frank Miller wrote the screenplay for. Can we get on that? Uh, If if someone who listens to this show wants to send us that screenplay, please, please feel free. We would love to read it out loud here on the show. Uh, Comic books and creators, uh, it is the the big swoon of my life. The creators that I absolutely love and adore, uh, it is because of the work that they put forth. Not every comic creator that I love is a nice guy. I've had people that I absolutely idolize, uh, treat me terribly from the minute I walked into comic books and, and really their demeanor never changed. And they have kind of a notorious reputation for being very, very, uh, ill-tempered people and, and, and very difficult to navigate beyond myself. I mean, with everyone, but that doesn't change my view of the art. It's, it's a gem when they are as warm and receptive and kind and inspirational as Jack Kirby and as Frank Miller. So I really felt like sharing this Frank Miller, this excerpt from this interview and talking about when he says, again, my favorite line in it, he's like, also, I love to draw comics. Like when he tells the guy, I prefer comics over movies. And that's the spirit, that love, uh, to, to draw comics is just what inspires me and, and, and knowing that my idols, the people that I completely look up to in the comic book business enjoyed producing pages and telling stories and making sequential art, going beyond just doing covers. That That is what gets me raring to go, revved up. And so in closing the show, I want to remind you that I too have a comic book coming out. Deadpool Batter Blood. Number three is Landing. It is coming to you on August thirtieth. That is that is we are ending the summer with a bang. Deadpool Batter Blood number three is an absolute blast. I had the best fun, and 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 I I broke out issues four and five because I wanted to show my wife. Uh, we we were I, I had all the pages on my iPad on my computer, and I and I showed the enti- entire extended uh, comics that are are yet to make their way into your hands issue three will be there this week as of this recording and then and, and then issue four deadpool batter blood number four is going to be out in 21 days really close window uh it will follow in 21 days and then uh i believe beginning of october is when you're going to be able to get your hands on the final chapter and i am so excited to share them with you because they were done with tremendous joy and excitement and i just decided in the middle like like Rob. Have more fun. You can have more fun than you're having with this story. And I decided to do just that. And I hope it translates and I hope you dig it. As always, I invite you to follow me on social media on the several different platforms that I am regularly posting and interacting on. I'd like to start by asking you to follow me over on Twitter. You can find me on Twitter at Robert Liefeld. Full R O B E R T L I E F E L D. I have one of those pesky checks. It comes and it goes, uh, you know, with the wind, uh, but 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 currently it, it identifies that I am the true Rob Liefeld and not one of the uh, phony accounts. And when we're talking, you are literally talking to me. I handle my social media. I am the one talking to you, reading your DMs, your comments, your messages, uh, your reactions. Thank you so much for interacting with me over on Twitter at Robert Liefeld. I will look for you over there at Robert Liefeld on Twitter, over on Instagram. That is my photo diary of my life, uh, what I'm eating, what I'm drawing, the friends and the family that I'm hanging out with, the places I'm going. Uh, I, I would love to uh, interact with you more, reading your messages again, your comments, your uh, replies, your DMs. I, I have such a blast on both Twitter and Instagram. On Instagram, I am Rob Leifeld, and that also has a blue check signifying that I am the real Rob Liefeld, that you are interacting with. And I am so excited to always interact with you either on Instagram at Rob Liefeld or Twitter at Robert Liefeld. I invite you, if you are in any way on Facebook, interacting with Facebook, even casually, jump over and check out our group. It's a group, it's Rob Liefeld, Marvel, Extreme, and Beyond. We continue so many of the conversations that we start here over there, more long form a uh, little more chatty a little more uh, extended back and forth i'm always i'm on all day uh interacting and talking to, to to all of you who are who are uh part of the rob liefeld marvel extreme and beyond group jump over to facebook uh submit to 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 join the group and either myself or a gentleman named terry sala s-a-l-a will click you on through that's how you know you're in the right place we have art contests uh we share all the different comics opinions uh, it, it's just a really great uh environment uh we we, we keep it very, very upbeat and positive, and I, 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 hope to see you if you aren't there already on the Rob Liefeld Marvel Extreme and Beyond group at Facebook. I read your responses to the show, and you guys have carried the show. It, you are the reason that we are the top comic book podcast that we have uh, climbed to the top, and and uh, and and you, you you all of you listeners, you put us there. You put this show um and 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 have given us this reach and this audience and i am so excited and when you leave your messages and your reviews for the show your five stars it helps us out so tremendously to continue to pop from all the other uh stuff out there the podcast world obviously is extremely crowded and when you give us a review especially like on the apple platform it helps us stand out so much i appreciate it today i am reading to you from one mark johnson and he wrote uh this this uh, nice message about the podcast. He says, Rob, long time fan. I got to tell you how much I enjoy your podcast. I work from home and I just play episodes all day while working and it makes the day go by. There are so many misconceptions about you that you explain on the podcast. And it made me think, have you ever thought about doing a Q&A episode where we could ask you questions about your career and about possible misconceptions you may or may not be aware are out there. Unfortunately, I'm sure that there would be trolls, but it would be It would give you a chance to look over the questions and ignore those. And you may find repeat questions and also ones to address in future Q and A's. Again, love your podcast. Thank you for the years of memories. Hey, Mark, not only am I going to thank you for posting that for, for, for for presenting that review. I'm going to tell you, absolutely. Let's do it. Let's do a Q and A. Let's have it. uh, Let's, let's submit to everybody. You guys drop me your questions. I can do an entire episode answering your questions. You know, I, um, Love to talk. I'm quite long winded. I'll give you the most detailed answer I possibly can. I thank you so much for supporting this show. You, you guys, again, as I said just a minute ago, you carried this show. It's, 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 uh, it's a show that is literally carried by all of you listeners. And so let's do it. If that's what you want, let's do q and A Q&A episode. Thank you for supporting this show. I try and bring all of the research, all of the interviews, the, uh, the, the, you know, the, the sometimes the the memos, the faxes as many receipts as i possibly can dates uh timestamps to, to show you guys what was going on in a, in in dur- during you know the history of comics it is very much again as i've mentioned before being removed it is being forgotten recency bias is a real thing and this industry was built on the backs of some really incredible people and some incredible uh, achievements and we're going to always talk about them just like today with jack getting his artwork back, huge part, but we've never touched on it, but it was time. It was time today to share that with you. And again, something as, as, as great as Frank Miller continuing to shine his light on all the different uh, aspects and perspectives of his tremendous career. So you guys give me those Q and A's and we will uh, prepare an episode in the future. You know, as always, I, I want your mental and spiritual, uh, your, your physical and your emotional self to be in the best possible. But uh, condition. And, and and look, we're all on this virtual treadmill together, just kind of going through life. And it can be a grind. I call it the grind. And sometimes you just got to get off the grind, get on the recliner. Maybe it's popcorn. Maybe it's chips. Watch that streaming show. Watch that cool movie. Read that comic book, that run of comic books. I run out of the garage. I pull out my legit uh, 70s comics all the time. I look at the new. I, I, I like seeing them on the newsprint the actual copies. I have my trades. I have my omnibuses. But I like get in the the old comics. The smell. The look of that newsprint. All of the old advertisements that were running them. That just takes me away. It also it, it inspires me for what's next. To, to 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 jump onto the next page. The next assignment. Um, the other night went out to dinner. Had the best salmon I have ever had, and I have had salmon all over the world. One of the best fish dishes I have ever had with these incredible uh, the the spinach and couscous. Oh my gosh. I mean, it was, uh, and and, and literally fried tomatoes. Uh, Oh, it was just spectacular. You know what? And we came back and we watched Lioness, the the most amazing new killer show from Taylor Sheridan with Zoe Zaldana, with Morgan Freeman, with Nicole Kidman. I mean, it is special ops, military badass. So I had a great meal in my belly, watched a great show with my wife. We loved it. We chatted up, we talked, we fell asleep, but we were completely just all of our senses Tingling, and that's what a great meal and a great experience with your friends and your family, and then a great show can do. And so, my my wish is that 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 time is available to you, whether it is with your friends or your family, or you can just escape into a book or a comic book or a show and just uh, step away and look. Maybe it's with really healthy food, or maybe it's with junk food. The, the cheap meals exist for a reason. Uh, get out there, get a break from uh, this virtual treadmill, and and just. Uh, I I am rooting for you and and for you to be restored so you can go on and get back to that punching bag that is called life and take some brand new bold swings at it. I am rooting for you always. I know you are also rooting for me. Hey, do me a favor, swing back around. I'm going to be here. I'm going to be here waiting because we will most certainly, absolutely, and inevitably talk again real soon.